Our Father God, we bring thanks to you for your word, and especially as we come again to this book of Ruth, with thanks for what it tells us, thanks for the unfolding story and the blessings that have come to us because of Ruth and Boaz. Thank you that as we think about this thing, these things together, that you will make your will and your word plain to us. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. When we last left the story of Ruth at the end of chapter 1, we left her with her mother-in-law, Naomi, far from her own land of Moab, now in the little town of Bethlehem, deep in the heart of Judah. As a Moabite girl in the land of Judah, you can probably guess that things weren't necessarily going to be easy for her. It wasn't easy being a widow in those days, let alone a widow from a foreign country. And so as we dip our toes into the second chapter, it's this difficulty that first of all emerges for our consideration. How were Ruth and Naomi going to survive? How were they going to make a living for themselves? Now it's easy for us to know the end of the story and know how it ends, but imagine that you're reading this for the first time and you have no idea how the story is going to unfold. And maybe for you the question is real. How are they going to make a go of it? Well, at the end of chapter 1, the writer introduced us to the fact that when they arrived back in Bethlehem, it was time for the barley harvest. And in that small fact, the way ahead was foreshadowed for the reader. Even more so when the writer tells us that Naomi had a relative called Boaz and Ruth just happened, quote, Uh, to get a job working in his fields. And so the scene is set and the scene grows brighter and brighter with every minute and every verse, doesn't it? After a bleak, long sojourn in Moab for Naomi, where she left there buried a husband and two sons, it seems like when they get back to Bethlehem again, it's morning. It's bright. The sun has risen. The harvest has come. And maybe at Naomi's suggestion or maybe at Ruth's initiative, prompted along by the Holy Spirit, Ruth set out to work in this man's fields as one of the poorer members of society. Now here we need to understand something about one of the laws that God left in place for his people explained to us in the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 24, Verse 19, it says, When you reap your harvest in your field and forget a sheaf in your field, you shall not go back to get it. It shall be for the sojourner, the fatherless and the widow, that the Lord your God may bless you in all the work of your hands. You shall remember that you are a slave in the land of Egypt. Therefore, I command you to do this. 
Now this law of God was especially given for the benefit of the poor. One of the provisions that God left his people to follow. And the law was this, that when you harvested your paddock with your threshing implement, you would leave a certain amount on the side of the field and in the corners of the field. You wouldn't go and harvest every sheaf that was possible, but you'd leave some of it for the poor for those who had no means of provision for themselves. And it was very often the women, especially the widows, for whom this provision was most beneficial. And so it's Ruth who ventures out into Boaz's paddock in the barley harvest time. And the fact that she's doing that is significant both for her survival the bigger picture, and yet the response to the prayer of Naomi in chapter 1, verse 8. Remember what she prayed. She said, Go back, each of you, to your mother's home, and may the Lord show kindness to you as you have shown to your dead and to me. May the Lord grant that each of you find find rest in the home of another husband. So as chapter 2 begins and Ruth goes into the barley fields to glean, as it turned out, just as it turned out, it just so happened that she found herself working in the field belonging to Boaz. Last week, or last time we looked at Ruth chapter 1, we thought about three journeys. Today we're thinking about three characters And those three characters are all in the text. There's Ruth, there's Boaz, there's Naomi. First, let's consider what the writer says about Ruth, the dutiful worker. What is it that Ruth does in chapter 2? There are a few things to note. The first one is quite obvious. She simply goes out and she does her duty. Did you hear that? Nothing special, nothing extraordinary. She just does her duty. She doesn't go to Naomi and say to her, you know, now that I live in Judah and I've attached myself to the God of Judah, I've become a believer in him, please give me a lesson on guidance. Please tell me how to find what the Lord's will is for me. Maybe that she might have been led to do that by well-meaning believers around her if she lived in this day and age. No, she doesn't do that. She just goes out and she does her duty. She goes into the fields to glean. She needed food. Her mother-in-law needed food. She had bound herself to provide for her mother-in-law. She needed to go out and get food And the law had given a means of her to do that. She did her duty. And in the course of doing her duty, God led and guided her. Now let's glean something ourselves. Let's glean that sometimes it's not the extraordinary things that we find the guidance of God about. It's not in the bright lights. It's not in the clashing of symbols. It's not in the dreams and visions. It's in the still, small voice of going about ordinary, day-to-day, 
humdrum work. It just so happens that an email comes into your inbox. It just so happens that your mobile rings. It just so happens that you bump into someone at the supermarket. It just so happens that in your day-to-day obedience to God, doing your duty, doing that which God has given you to do, that God fulfills his plan and God works out his purposes. Don't fret too much looking for the extraordinary. We say of those things, oh, God was clearly in that because that was quite out of the blue. As though he were not in the ordinary things of life. When in factual fact, everything that happens to us, the ordinary and the extraordinary, is under the hand of our God. Remember what Jesus said, every hair on your head is numbered. And if he knows the sparrow that falls, he knows to any hair of your head that's going to go the same way. And he orders every detail of your life. Your father knows before it happens. And apart from Ruth doing doing her duty, we see that Ruth showed godly character. And how is that character seen? It's seen in the meekness and the gentleness of her spirit. The meekness and the gentleness of her spirit. The Apostle Peter wrote of this in his letter, chapter 3, verses 3 to 4, addressing women, and I'm not going to labour this point. Your beauty, he says, should not come from outward adornment, such as braided hair and the wearing of gold jewellery and fine clothes. Not that Peter is saying that those things are wrong. Please don't misunderstand me or Peter. He says, but these things aren't really your beauty. He says those things are beautiful, they might certainly help, but they're not the essence of what beauty is, which he describes like this. Instead, it should be that of your inner self, the unfading beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is of great worth in God's sight. Then he goes on in verse 5, for this is the way the holy women of the past who put their hope in God used to make themselves beautiful. Peter probably is talking about Sarah and Abraham, but I wonder if he's thinking about Ruth. I wonder if he's thinking about her beauty that appears in this text. We don't know what she looks like, but isn't she beautiful? Isn't Ruth a beautiful woman in the context of this meekness and gentleness of spirit that we read in the text about her? It was without doubt the character of Ruth And in all that transpires in this chapter, in all her response to Boaz, when Boaz speaks to her, there's something so beautiful about her, there's something so very attractive about her spirit and about her demeanour and the way she speaks. As the narrative unfolds and as Boaz discerns the character of this woman that's under his care, he also discerns that this character, this woman, is one who could so easily be taken advantage of. And you notice in the narrative a couple of times how he's instructed his harvesters, his young men, don't touch her. Don't you touch her. And she's told to be careful. Told told her in advance that 
She will come for water from the place where they drink and they're not to touch her. They're not to tell her off. They're not to scold her. He knows his men, I think. He knows what they're capable of doing. And now they know that he knows. And now it's out there. This girl needs protection. And in all of this, Boaz is sending out this signal. This is a very special woman. Here's a woman of integrity. Here's a young woman of uprightness. This young believer. Don't you touch her. And Boaz is already sending out all these signals of protection and love and care towards her. May the Lord repay you for what you have done. Verse 12. May you richly be rewarded by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. Now, you may have kept chickens, mainly for eggs, as we do, but not, not necessarily for breeding purposes. We did have some chickens hatch when our kids were young, and that was fun. But you would probably know something of what it means to see the eggs hatch and raise small chickens come out. And you'd know that the parents become very, very protective of their young. And you would have seen a mother hen hold out her wings and spread them out so all her chickens can come underneath her feathers and be close to her as she sits down and surrounds them all. And this is the picture of what Ruth has found. This safety, this provision, this protection under the Lord's wings, so to speak. It's a beautiful picture. And the writer is using language here that's true of Ruth's relationship to God and will become true of Ruth's relationship to Boaz. There's food for thought, young girls. We do have some young girls here. There's food for thought here. Lessons that centre upon your character as being the most beautiful thing that you bring into any relationship. Your character. Ruth did her duty. Ruth was godly and meek. Secondly, note what the writer tells us about Boaz, the generous protector. I'm not sure if that's what he really looks like. As the narrative unfolds, similar language is used of Boaz's relationship to Ruth as Boaz takes, as it were, a kind of surrogate role of protection and responsibility for Ruth at this stage. As Ruth gleans in the paddock, Boaz notices her. Whose young woman is that? He says in verse 5. In verse 6, the foreman replies, she's the Moabitess who came back from Moab with Naomi. And then he sits about in this extraordinary way to make provision for her more than the law required. Now on two or three occasions, the writer has given us a hint that harvest fields are dangerous places to be. It's a dangerous place if you're a young girl. So when the writer tells us about Boaz, he wants us to immediately see that there's something different about this man. There's something safe about him, something generous. He's not just like any other man and his interests are not like the young men. In fact, several things are noted. For a start, see his attitude toward the Lord, verse 4. The God-centeredness of his life. He greets his harvesters. The Lord be with you. 
These are the first words we hear from Boaz. The Lord be with you. And their words about his God. And their words about his Lord. He's a man amongst men, isn't he? You know that when men are together, you know what happens. Talk among the boys, talk among the men. And yet here he is talking about God. The Lord be with you. It's the first thing you hear from Boaz. And immediately you know he's not an ordinary man. There's something special about him. This man loves God. This man loves the Lord. Then notice his concern for the poor. His concern for others. How he makes provision for Ruth, whom he doesn't know just yet. And how lavish and how generous he is. And although I think the writer wants us to discern that there's something of a romantic element beginning to grow, it's the lavishness of his provision and his generosity that stands out here. Here's a man with a big heart. Here's a man who's not just a man of words. You know, there are men who can talk about the Lord, but they've got a mean heart and they've got a mean spirit. But here's a man who talks about the Lord and he has a big heart and he has a generous spirit. Now with regard to that super generous amount of grain that Ruth brought home, given to her by Boaz, you remember the story in Matthew 14 of how 5,000 people were gathered to hear Jesus preached and they were hungry and there's only five loaves and two fish to feed them and how Jesus didn't turn them away, how he multiplied what was available and he met their need. He showed himself to be the same as God who once made provisions for the orphans and the widows and the sojourners to glean in Israel's fields so that Ruth might be fed. Think about that. Out of God's abundance, he has made provision for you, for your soul, in his son, in Jesus. No one ever came to faith in Jesus and went away empty did they? No one ever failed to receive something from his hand. In fact, the lesson of Ruth's ephah of grain is the same lesson as the 12 basketfuls of leftovers after he multiplied the loaves and the fishes to feed the 5,000. It's not just that he meets your need, that he provides more than you need. That's what Ruth found. There's more grace than you can comprehend in Jesus. Where sin abounds, grace abounds all the more. So there is a superabounding provision for you and the mercy and the grace of Jesus. Then also notice Boaz's humility. After Ruth begins to understand that Boaz has noticed her, and lavished extra kindness upon her, and she bows down with her face to the ground to him and says, why have I found favour in your eyes when I'm just a foreigner? There's not an element of pride in his response. I mean, he's the opportunity for him to say, well, well, Ruth, you know, I'm I'm like Jack Horner. You know, what a good boy am I. I'm just such a good guy. You know, you just can't get past me. Uh, the best in Bethlehem. It's an opportunity to boast and be self-promoting and gloat 
express his pride, express his position. I'm self-righteous, I'm self-sufficient. But he doesn't. His reply is just the opposite. He says, it's you, Ruth. All that you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband, it's come to my ears and how you left your father and mother and you left your native land and you came to a people that you did not know before. May the Lord repay you for what you have done and a full reward be given you by the Lord. Here's a man of whom we can say that he's not only noticed Ruth at a romantic level, but he sees her as a sincere believer before he sees anything else about her. And he sees that in her because there is no evil deceit within him, pushing him to do these things, to gain a name, to gain her trust. He did those things because they flowed from a heart that also knew grace and was therefore truly humble. I had lessons before for the young ladies. There's a lesson for the young men about how to treat women with respect, as is fitting for any young man who calls upon the name of the Lord with a sincere heart. And thirdly, let's note what the writer tells about Naomi, the hopeful schemer. Naomi is very much in the background in terms of the text, but there's something we can say about her. I said before it was either her idea or Ruth's idea that encouraged Ruth to glean in this man's harvest fields. If it was Naomi's idea, then it appears that she was a bit of a schemer who knew full well that she might be able to set into motion the very answer to her own prayer that Ruth might find a husband. If she didn't suggest this plan to Ruth, then it certainly seems that by the time Ruth got home that evening and finally lets lets go of the 14 kilogram bag of grain that she's been carrying, that's not a light amount of grain, and thumps it on the floor in front of her, And Naomi says, and where have you been today? Um, In whose field have you been gleaning? As if she didn't know. Of course she knew. Why, what is this grain that you've brought home? Of course she knew. And whose field was it again? Oh, Boaz. You know, he's a near kinsman, redeemer of ours. Isn't that amazing? And so the stage is set for the unfolding of the next part of the story in the next, part, in the next chapter, which Naomi play, plays an important part in getting Ruth ready for what she needs to do. I think she's in on this for sure. I think the little wheels are spinning in her brain and she can see the possibilities that could eventuate the possibilities that could be, the plan and purposes of God that could come to fruition just as long as Ruth plays her part right because the risk she will take in chapter 3 by doing what she does could go horribly wrong, absolutely blow the whole thing out of the water. It could go terrible. There's risk involved but Naomi is willing to play a delicate part in the unfolding of the matter.
Well, what's the lesson of the chapter? Just this, just the one point. Even insignificant things have meaning in the plan and the purpose of God. The seemingly random decision to glean in that particular field on that particular day, at that particular time, will prove to have a long-term significance for the future welfare of Naomi and Ruth that neither of them could ever have anticipated. And it works out like that because God is sovereign and he works all things according to the counsel of his own will to the praise of his glorious grace. Here's the great adventure of what it means to live the Christian life. There are no insignificant details in your lives. There are no moments that we call throwaway moments. Your times are in God's hands. Your days were written in his book before one of them came to be. And God is working out his purposes as year succeeds to year and he does this in the lives of his people. And so even the random events that happen to you can yet prove to have a significance for the glory of God and the good of his people that you can never imagine. Romans 8.28 tells us that, doesn't it? All things working together for good according to God's plan. All things working together. Are you ready for that? Are you ready to say, Lord, let me be one in whom you work out your plan? Well, you will be if your heart is right before him. He will lead you if you're ready to trust him, not just for salvation, but for everything else that he wants to do, not just for you, but in you and through you. See, as we come to the Lord's Supper, is that point not true in the life of Jesus? That God used every detail of what he did and he said and what Judas did and what Judas said and what the Jews did and what the Jews said to get him to the cross where he needed to be that we might be saved to bring us to him that we might be his people how then Will he not, as the rest of Romans 8 went on to say, as we heard earlier, how then will he not, along with him, graciously give us what? All things. All things. Under his mighty care. But trust is needed. And that is also a gift for him, from him. So let's pray together. Ask that he would give it. We come with grateful thanks, Heavenly Father, that you have promised all things working together for good 
for those that love you who are called according to your purpose. We confess that we look at what you provide at times and we are anxious. We don't know the whole picture. We can't see the bright threads amidst the many dark threads. We can't see what your purposes often are. And that's because we're so short-sighted. We don't have the position that you have who sit above the circle of the earth and who sees all. Help us, Lord, as we put our lives in your hands, as we abandon trust in ourselves or in fate or in circumstance or in luck and say, Lord, these things, they will not bring me closer and closer to you, but trusting you will and putting myself in your hands is the best thing. Thank you for the encouragement we glean this morning from Ruth and Boaz and their faithful, godly lives. Thank you that you never let go of the righteous, but you hold them by your hand all the way through. Grant, too, that we might also have the assurance and the knowledge that every day is being worked out under your mighty, wonderful, all-seeing, all-loving hand. For Jesus' sake we pray. Amen.